This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. Where we left off, we were kind of in 1983 with uh, Larry Eiler. We were specifically talking about this time where kind of looks like to the media and to different levels of law enforcement that maybe uh, there are a couple of people behind the I-70 Strangler cases or the ones that are sort of lumped together initially. And we were talking about the fact that like with the media, you can't even really tell how many victims there are, but ultimately they sort of, they tab uh, everybody down to 12 I-70 Strangler victims. And they pulled out a few people that we already mentioned. The Indiana state police get a bunch of people together in spring of 1983 when they realize that, uh, the the gay community, specifically in Indianapolis, but also kind of sprawling out of there a little bit, is they've got a predator in their midst, maybe two. Uh, we talked about the fact that there's an FBI profile that pops up in here, but the last person that we were like really specifically talking about was Daniel McNeevy, and then we talked about Richard Bruce briefly, but he's not in Illinois. He, uh, he's not in Indiana. He's up in Illinois. And what the Indiana State Police do when they bring all these people together is they identify multiple jurisdictions and they get about 40 detectives looking at bodies of young males who seem to be from the same types of places and have the same types of wounds. Specifically, they're looking at these stabbings. The... Conclusion of these series of meetings that they have in 1983 is that regardless of what's happening in terms of an I-70 strangler, there is a person that seems to be the same person spilling over into at least four, possibly five jurisdictions. And he, all of these police are going to be responsible for tracking this killer down. Now, they put together, they decide they're going to put together a, a task force. And we've, we've raised some questions about, like, like, what was this actual task force they were doing? But they do put together a, a unified task force, and they start to take these different jurisdictions, murder investigations within Indiana, and they sort of they collect them all in one big pot. And so... The task force ends up with a, a couple of detectives from the ISP, the Indiana State Police, a couple of Indianapolis police, and then a couple from the different counties that are involved. This task force ends up getting a name, and that name is CIMATE, C-I-M-A-I-T. And it's commanded by a guy named Jerry Campbell, who's a lieutenant at the Indianapolis police. 
all the information that they're bringing in is being collected and entered into a computerized database that is a part of Indianapolis's statewide police system. And on the very first day of this coordinated task force existence, they reach out to the National Crime Information Center and the FBI, and they describe what's happening down here. They say, we've got a guy taking these young men. We can't tell exactly which are which, but we've got stranglings or strangulations, and we've got stabbings. We've got a couple of odd types of body disposal that mostly involve rural areas. And they, they tell the, the Crime Information Center that they, they want to know whoever is out there that has re- reported young male murder victims with these type wounds, we, we would like to hear from them. So shortly after this happens, investigators in Kentucky, they contact the task force and they tell about a guy named Jay Reynolds. Jay Reynolds is a 29-year-old Lexington resident who had been uh, stabbed to death, and he had been found in Madison County. So Lexington, Kentucky is Fayette County. Jay Reynolds is found in Madison County on March the 22nd, same year. His body had likely been transported to the site that it had been left. A couple days later, Chicago police call. And they report that they have the body of an African-American teenager named Jimmy Roberts. He was 18 years old. And he had been found up in Thorn Creek, which is just south of Chicago, on May the 9th. He had 35 stab wounds to his body. Both of these victims end up linked to these the same perpetrator. And the task force calls this unknown subject the highway murderer. So that's slightly separate now of the I-70 killer. Does that make sense? Yes. On June 6th, a guy named Thomas Henderson, he calls into the task force's confidential hotline. And he tells the person answering the phone there that he thinks they know, that he knows who they are looking for. He explains that in 1978, Uh, A man that he was involved with had been charged with, quote, some sort of stabbing of a young hitchhiker. And he goes on to say that uh, his boyfriend or lover, depending on the terminology you want to use here, has a really violent temper and he likes to tie his partners up. And then he adds that whole story where Larry... Uh, was working in this liquor store in Greencastle and then going down to this condo in Terre Haute on the weekends. So he's, you know, he's working one place and he's, he knows he's here. He doesn't know that there's this whole other side where Larry was living with this couple or staying with this couple. But he informs investigators that in May of 1982, Larry Eiler, who is his lover, had drugged a 14-year-old boy and he had gone into a, a, a park close to Greencastle, and he abandoned this kid essentially to die. But the boy didn't end up being molested. And investigators drew up a theory that Larry Eiler had given the boy sedatives, and he didn't actually plan to do anything with the kid. 
he was testing how the drug would work. And I read that, and I think that is one of the most disturbing things I've ever read. It indicates to me that, like, well, I'm not sure exactly, but it's almost like there's this additional sense of control that he has over himself or something. At the time this is all going on, there are a lot of suspects going around. None of them are like this. I think it's, I think you're right. I think part of it is this guy's controlling. I think if you tie it in with the bondage, there is something really devious about wanting to know how this drug you've got in your hands on works so badly that you snag this kid. Just to find out. Just to see what happens when you drug him. Does now, it did he him? hurt the kid at all except for drugging him? No. No, the kid was just abandoned in the woodland. According to uh, Jara Lynn's book, which she wrote with Wayne Clatt, that's uh, Freed to Kill, the story of serial murderer Larry Eiler is the subtitle. That, According to that book, Henderson knew about this, and the boy was not killed. But was he injured? Well, that's a good I mean, question. I would say that, like, I, go ahead. I mean, I I find that uh, little nugget of information very distur- like even more so disturbing because it's just it's weird, right? That's a lot of effort um, to to end up not going through with it, and we, you know we don't know a hundred percent that that's really what happened, but it is an interesting element. But there's a lot of things about this guy as it sort of plays out that I find to be. Like, if it weren't about a serial killer, I would say intriguing. But there's just some things I go, hmm, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's what the investigators put out there. That's what Jara Lind, who we're, we're going to get to her in a minute, that's what she puts in her book. Now, one of the thoughts I had on this was maybe he just, like, gave the kid the drug and had plans for him, but the drug acted too quickly. And, or something. Know, There's yeah, some other element that, and yeah. so it really wasn't a situation where, you know, it was like as conniving and devious and planned out. It was more of like sort of how it played out, right? Yeah. So, okay, this information coming into the task force from Thomas Henderson, it does raise some eyebrows, and the investigators discover when they are looking into the background of Larry Eiler. That he had been arrested in 1978. He had tried to assault a teenage hitchhiker whom he had stabbed and left for dead. So we talked about that. That's the one who was paid off. Yeah, this is the one where I think they don't lay all this out like real openly. I believe this is Craig Long. So Craig Long is the one that essentially Larry's lawyers give Craig Long a check for $2,500. Yeah, for $2,500. This is, uh, that is so incredibly wrong. Yeah, the way they get away with that is, so Robert Little is the one who writes that check, by the way. Um, That's the guy that Larry kind of lives with in Terre Haute and sees as a father figure for a while. So he's the one who wrote that. It's still like totally witness coercion. Right, I agree. But so he, he sees this. And they discover that this had all happened. 
a lot of this matches. So the stabbing, the leaving him for dead, he was handcuffed, his ankles were bound. That's starting to match the MO of who the investigators on this task force are thinking of as the highway murderer. All of those victims had different types of abrasions, welt marks, and indicators that they had been bound in some way on their wrists and their ankles. The more they dig into Larry, the more they realize that he is crossing back and forth between Indiana and Illinois quite a bit. Because of that, it's not enough to really bring Larry in yet, but it's certainly enough that they want to keep an eye on him. Okay, and this is all stemming from the fact that somebody called with a tip that has, I don't even know how to. His lover, his boyfriend, his lover, former his lover. roommate, whatever, because um, he had lived with them, right? I think he lived with Thomas Henderson at this point. This is, a, this is not one of the older guys, but yeah, I don't you know. Who's calling, though? Thomas Henderson, not Robert Little. Yeah, it's not the same guy that wrote the checks for him. So he's got two types of people in his life here. Okay, yeah, no, I just confused them. But so, okay, the police get a, or the task force gets a direct tip to this guy. Yeah. That's the only reason he comes on the radar. At this time, yeah, that's how they Mm -hmm. get him. Okay. Just like with the I-70 Strangler, the FBI, uh, while working with this uh, centralized task force, they develop a psychological profile of who they think the unknown person behind these killings might be. Now, what they predict here is that he's going to be a white male in his late 20s or early 30s working in a menial labor-intensive profession who presents a rough exterior in part due to self-hatred regarding his attraction to to other men. Now, do you think they hit that on with him? They, there are some things that line up in the profile here. Well, I mean, specifically because Larry was out to his family and it wasn't necessary. I, I find that a little bit off from the profile. Yeah. I think, I think like if you're looking at it from the perspective of like, are they like nailing this sort of latent homophobia they believe this guy has. I think that's wrong. But I do think that Larry in the violent outbursts we've talked about might still be getting there, even if he's not taking the same road they're trying to point him down. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like he just might hate himself. For me personally, it brings about this interesting thing that – I don't think I've ever come across it before. I feel like a lot of times, I think I've even said it, and I can't really think of who I would have said it about, but like a lot of this, these killers that kill, that are men that kill other men after sexually assaulting them, a lot of them are repressed gay men, right? It's the motivation. And so I had trouble bridging the gap here. Like for that to be the motive, yeah. Not repre- like at least, I I don't know about like other aspects of his life, but he was out and and had no qualms with the fact that he was in fact gay. Well, yeah, but that, you're right. We don't know deeper like what that really meant, right? Yeah, there was. This is still so the '80s here. This is still a time when that's not always accepted. Like, uh, like, there's still a possibility that 
in order to be, quote, normal or whatever, the media portrayal and the acceptance by the community still affected Larry. And I get that. And I think that that could possibly be the difference there. I was just thinking to myself a lot of time. Well, even in this case, a lot of times the men are not out, right? And and they have this sort of deep, almost like deep-seated resentment. You're right. And so here's another thing about these profiles. So first of all, and I've said this before about different people doing different types of profiles and why there are problems with drunk white guys you know, only being able to catch the other drunk white guys. But the thing about the FBI at this time is the FBI was not accepting of homosexuality openly. So yeah. mm-hmm. as far as we know, when the early behavioral analysis unit is sitting down and staring across the psychological genius minds at the tables, they could literally be looking at the one guy in the group that they have, they believe is like this and just sort of basing it on him. And I know that sounds terrible to say, but the the truth is profiles like this in our 2023, 2024, 2025 minds, it's not the same anymore. The world views lifestyle choices completely differently. So I think the FBI went a little overboard with this. Uh, they go further than just what I said there. Uh, according to a couple of sources on this, Uh, including the return of Larry Eiler, which is a John Conroy article from the Chicago uh, Reader, which I think you can still get online, and Robert Ressler. Here's what was said overall. The individual believed to be the highway murderer would project a macho image, seeking the company and approval of other masculine males in order to feel a sense of belonging. As such, this individual would frequent redneck bars and to be something of a night owl, yet live on the edge of homosexual panic, always fearful of being labeled by others as queer. Due to this fear, the offender may express a hatred of homosexuals in order to mask his sexual attraction to those from whom he sought acceptance. Furthermore, the FBI predicted that after these murders happen, or, and I think they get this wrong, but I'll tell you in a second, the offender would symbolically erase the act by making a rudimentary effort to cover his victim with leaves or soil. And that, this, and that this individual likely had a middle-aged, middle-class, and markedly more intelligent accomplice in several of his homicides. Okay, so first, <laughs> I, I, I know where we're headed there. Go ahead. There was no accomplice. There's, yeah, and the FBI tries really hard to make that come true later, and it's simply I mean, not true. I think that there might have been some activity on the part, like it gets confusing here, especially with Larry, because he had these like uh, kind of strange relationships with men and there might have been some like deviant planning on like trying to get a third or something into their, you know, activity. But I don't feel like when it comes down to it, these serial killers have enough like, a meeting of the mind with one of their buddies to like plot these things out. I just, I don't believe it. No, no. And like, e- even as we go, th- like there are some pairs out there that we've seen that do multiple murders. It's just typically not driving at the same predatory ending. And also, okay. So he's going to cover it up by symbolically like putting some leaves over the body or some dirt over the body and having kind of a weak, Shallow grave. But he is not but mad he's at himself, have somebody. 
though. Like, and he's not upset and he's not putting on this show because he doesn't want people to know he's gay. He's out. I know. That's a, that's one of the big problems with his profile in general. But I'm just pointing it out because it was it's in the known media. If you go hunting through the articles and the books, that's this is what you come up with. Um, this is what's been released. So, you know, I thought I would mention it here. I will say this though. This is how they close this is how they close this thing out. As many victims had been athletic and life in stature, this profile also predicted the offender to be a physically strong individual. The predictions within this profile regarding the offender's strength were supported by the presence of deep welt marks upon the wrist of many victims, suggesting they had struggled resisting being bound or handcuffed. Okay. Saying that... a Serial killer is strong is not, I mean, I, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean for us. Like, so, okay, so anybody, because, like, how do you look at someone and go, that guy's strong? Well, and I, I feel like they missed, like, a really important point here. And I could be wrong, but I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, what I think. It, there was no, these people were with this person of their own accord, they weren't taken. They were uh, surprised in the course of already being in the person's company. They were surprised with being attacked. Yeah, you've made and that point. And I think it's important to reiterate that, like, so as, as far as we can tell, there is no snatch and grab of these people that you need to be strong for. Right, they, they, exactly. got, they got in the car to go smoke a joint with you or have a beer or like, you know, to and go play a little or something. You know what I mean? Right. And so the strength aspect of it is, well, I mean, if you're not fighting and all of a sudden you're attacked, you're right. The person probably was substantially stronger than the victim, at least for a moment. Right. Yeah. And so I think that plays a huge difference. Um, and, you know, some of these victims are younger, and I I presume that, like, a – I actually don't know. Um, do you get stronger as you get older? Does that matter? Like, would some – I think – Yeah, I, I don't I, – so the way it worked for me was I did not peak until I fully understood what diet and exercise was all about. But there are periods of times when I was much younger, say – 17 to 22 people would look at that version of me and think that he was stronger than 40 year old me, but they'd be wrong. He looks stronger than 40 year old me, but 40 year old me knew how to pace himself and how to eat. Right. And that made a difference in my endurance. It made a difference in like my strength in general. So I think that that part of the profile could be irrelevant, right? A lot of this profile is irrelevant. They're taking a shot in the dark, trying to give something that'll give this task force leads. Well, in spite of all this going on, on July the 2nd, 1983, more murders start happening, uh, or more, more murders are discovered, is a better way to put it. There is an unidentified Hispanic man that's found in a field two miles from the city of Paxton, which is up in Ford County, Illinois. So it's not an Indiana victim. This victim had been dead since sometime in late June and had been repeatedly stabbed in the abdomen. And then on August 31st, 
a tree trimming crew discovered the body of another victim. This is a 28-year-old man named Ralph Calise, and he's in a field close to Illinois Route 60, like where the tollway is there. He had been stabbed so severely that he had also been disemboweled to some degree, similar to some of the other cases that we were talking about. They get a little far for me with calling that a comparison. I don't think it's on purpose. I think it's from the rage. Um, He had been stabbed approximately 17 times with a butcher or a hunting knife. And several of those wounds that were inflicted to his abdomen area had caused portions of his small intestine to protrude. Lake County investigators here in Illinois, they link this to the stabbing deaths of two other young men. That's Irvin Gibson and Gustavo Herrera. They had been discovered in a similar area, but earlier in the year. So all of a sudden, there's a task force going down in Indiana with you know, some links to the FBI, and we have this little stack of bodies adding up in Illinois to bump that count up. And that's where one of our sources enters. So in early September, a Chicago-based reporter who was up there for WLS-TV, which is the ABC affiliate in Chicago, Illinois, uh, the reporter's named Geraldyn Kaleric. She Now, Geraldyn writes on Larry Eiler later, like writes books. She noted similarities between Ralph Kalise's murder and the other two young males who had been found in Lake County, and that's Irvin Gibson and Gustavo Herrera. She was also, at the time, familiar with the idea that other young men were being murdered in Indiana and that there were she had started to sniff out the similarities, particularly with like the viciousness of the knife attacks online. You'll read that they're mutilations or that they're some kind of signature or whatever. She was just focused in on the fact that like not a lot of people commit those types of knife attacks that are rage specific. She speculated that the perpetrator of these earlier murders from Indiana had maybe moved his disposal grounds up into Illinois. So she gets to talking to Chicago investigators, specifically some of the Cook County investigators. Now, Chicago is the the center or the seat of Cook County. She discovers that more young men who had lived in or disappeared from this area of Chicago called Uptown, in 1982, had also been discovered with multiple stab wounds to their bodies and with, you know, their pants pulled down, their underwear pulled down. Uh, Some of them were topless. And they had been found in uh, uh, Kankakee County, Illinois, and Lowell, Indiana. So there's at least two of those victims that she sees and she starts linking them to this pile. On September the 8th, investigators from all over Indiana and Illinois, they start talking to the task force representatives. Um, They meet up in a place called Crown Point, and they basically look at these five deaths, and they go, are these linked into it? They add them to the list of the highway murderer's victims. 
So at this point in time, investigators on the task force are sort of looking at this list and going, this guy's killed 17 young men. Then a month later, so still 1983, but in October now, two mushroom hunters out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it's always the mushroom hunters and the ginseng hunters, they find a human torso in a plastic bag. That victim ends up being identified as an 18-year-old named Eric Hansen who was last seen alive on September 27th in St. Francis, Wisconsin. Hansen's head, arms, and legs have been severed from his torso with a hacksaw. He gets sort of put on this pile. Uh, because of the injury and what's been going on here, the torso is completely drained of blood. And by the way, Eric Hansen, from what I can tell, multiple sources say that his skull and his hands have never been found. If you go on uh, Kenosha County cold cases, Eric Hansen is still at the top of their cold cases. On October 18th and 19th, the partially decomposed bodies of four more victims are discovered close to an abandoned farmhouse in Lake Village, Indiana. The victims there had been dead for several months. All of them were partially buried or covered up, but sections of the body had been exposed above ground. Three of these victims were Caucasian, and they were buried on one side of an oak tree there, about three, four feet apart, all of their heads facing in the same direction. There was a fourth victim who was an African-American teenager. He was buried on the other side of the tree. All of these victims had been stabbed more than two dozen times with a blade at least eight inches in length. And again, their pants are all at their ankles. Two months later, we get to December the 7th, and a hunter finds a partly buried skeleton in Hendricks County, which is off of U.S. Route 40. This victim gets identified as a 17-year-old who had disappeared in March named Richard Wayne. He had been traveling from California to go back home to Montpelier in Indiana. The body of a second, less decomposed victim was discovered beneath the remains of a burned mobile home just a few feet away from where Richard Wayne had been partly buried. This decedent turned out to be an African-American male. He was five feet, nine inches tall. Uh, he's still a nameless to this day. His remains have never been identified. All right. So that's the victims that we're kind of playing with here. That's a lot, right? It is a lot. Mm -hmm. If you go online and you, you sort of read through, there are multiple unidentified victims. Uh, I think there's four, it might be three that have not been identified. You know that uh, the fourth unidentified victim, number two and number, I'm sorry, number three and number four, uh, the fourth one was identified like in July. Uh, we're going to get to that. Okay. Um, I I knew one had been identified. I, I get confused because I'm not entirely sure. Um, the two I'm thinking of, they've been specifically identified as Larry's victims. And so I'm not sure... Uh, with regard to like victims that, you know, they're not sure exactly who's responsible for their death. Right. Yeah. I knew that in uh, July of last year in 2023, that it was Keith Bibbs, right? He had been identified. I believe so. That's one of the things that makes doing these so difficult is because 
things happen along the way where we record this whole series and then we have to go back and check on everything uh, before we put it out. And that's um, one of the things that kind of dragged us along. So that's the victims. There's roughly 25, 26 victims here. I don't, do you have a full count on how many victims there are? I know there's three or four unidentified. I don't. I don't have a full count. I know that. I don't know exactly how that plays in. That's the only thing I'm, that was on my mind about the unidentifieds. So let's just get to like how they are going to deal with Larry Eiler. And it may feel like I'm jumping around here. That's not I'm not really what I'm doing. I'm trying to give you guys this because we're coming back to something that we were talking about previously. And I've tried to keep this roughly like uh, synopsized to go uh, with the I-70 Strangler. But he, this is an I-70 Strangler suspect. That's still a topic we're on. September 30th, 1983. Larry Eiler gets arrested for a traffic violation. At the time that he gets pulled over, he had been in the company of a young hitchhiker. So both men are arrested and detained by the Indiana State Police. Originally, Larry's being detained because... They're looking at charges for him of soliciting this young male for sexual purposes based on an interview. A sergeant named William Cothran, so this is an ISP guy, without Larry's consent and before informing him that he's under arrest, he searches his his Ford pickup truck on the side of the road and he discovers two sections of nylon rope. His vehicle ends up being impounded. Shortly after 1.30 p.m., two investigators from the task force, they conduct a formal interview with Larry. They informed uh, him that he had become a suspect in a series of murders due to an anonymous phone call received from a former acquaintance of his. Although he's willing to discuss any aspect of his life and their suspicions of his having committed this murder, Larry, at this time, refuses to talk about his sexuality. He gets questioned about murders from the very beginning of this, John Roach and Daniel McNeeby. Larry claims to have read press coverage of both those murders in the Indianapolis Star, but he tells the investigators he didn't have anything to do with those murders. He consents to the investigators' request to conduct a search and a forensic search of his vehicle, And he allows investigators to take his mugshot, to copy his fingerprints, and he agrees that he will come back in for a polygraph test. How do you think that goes? Not well. So a search of Larry's vehicle recovers the rope that had been seen, handcuffs, a hammer, ball bats, a mallet, surgical tape, and a knife. They inspect... Larry's clothing and his footwear. And then they inspect the tires of his vehicle. The impressions of his boots match plaster cast impressions that had been taken of footprint or boot prints that had been discovered alongside the body of Ralph Calise. Also, the pattern of his vehicle's plaster cast impressions of the tire tracks is deemed similar to the impressions from that same scene. They also discover under the handle of the knife uh, that was found inside his vehicle during the consent search, there's blood. 
And they start to put together that he was regularly commuting between multiple places in Indiana where he had sort of established places that he stayed and lived. And a couple of places in Illinois. And along the way, in between those, there were places where several victims' bodies had been discovered. In addition, some of the aspect of Larry's lifestyle matched what the FBI had predicted from the psychological profile. And some of it matched because when put under pressure, like he refused to talk about being gay. He refused to talk about a couple of things, but he was open about everything else. And that matched some of the, the midlines in that profile that Meg and I don't necessarily think were anything more than kind of fortune teller work. After the Indiana investigators with the task force and the ISP do a complete forensic examination of Larry's pickup truck, they come in and they tell Larry, hey, guess what? You're free to go. Here's your truck. Now, because they have told him he's a murder suspect, they believe that he might uh, start disposing of the evidence. So on October the 1st, the task force went in and they get a couple of search warrants. The first search warrant they get authorizes the search of Robert Little's home. They come in at dawn on October the 2nd and they get credit card receipts, which link Larry to these highway murderer jurisdictions at the right times on the right dates. They go through phone bills and they, the phone bills reveal that Larry is regularly placing collect calls to Robert Little at weird times. And in the investigator's mind, they look at these phone bills and these collect calls. And when they start laying it over in an additional uh, transparent layer over the, the different crime scenes, they believe these times might be linked to when these victims were last seen or killed. One of these calls had been placed from a payphone near the Cook County Hospital in Chicago, and that was on April the 8th. This lines up with the date of Gustavo Herrera's murder. Hospitalization records there reveal that Larry had gone into the emergency room for a, for a deep cut to his hand. He claimed that it had been caused in a fall where he was getting out of his truck and he hit the ground, but on the ground was a broken glass beer bottle. Receipts recovered from Robert Little's house revealed that the following day, Larry had purchased handcuffs and a knife. Investigators also discovered that Robert Little and Larry Eiler had been going on vacation. Uh, they had spent several weeks in New York City, and they had returned to Indiana with a time that lined up with Ralph Kalisa's murder. All of this information makes one of the members of the Indiana Task Force, uh, her name was Kathy Burner, she looks at it all and... She says, if Larry is not the, the highway murderer, he is literally driving behind this guy on the highway every day. So the times and the dates, Larry is basically, he has made it very easy for these guys to track down 
uh, all of his life and to sort of follow along and put him in a position to look at him like he's the highway murderer. Right. And uh, the implication is he's basically committing these murders and then making that phone call, right? Yes. Like panicked or who knows what the conversation is, but it's this consistency in the timing and the location, right? Yeah. And I was wondering about that because doesn't that feel a little like, I don't want, I'm I'm not calling little anything here, but I'm just saying, doesn't that feel like it sort of accounts for the part of the profile where they wondered about him having an accomplice? Possibly. Not Uh, that he actually has an accomplice, but that he has like that type of relationship. Um, I think it's possible that he was, you know, telling him, like, I did it again or whatever. Um, and I, if you want to consider someone like that an accomplice, then, you know, that that's different than what I think of when I say, like, this isn't something that you – it's so heinous that it's not possible for two deprived people with the same ability to be so heinous end up finding each other, right? Yeah. Um, that would be a different type of – sort of accomplice but you know we don't know but yeah i think it could account for that part of the profile certainly yeah so indiana authorities run into problems with the tire impressions they and they aren't able to compare all of the ones that they want to compare so the task force goes back to the state's attorney's office and they say hey we need to get we need to get larry's truck so lake county sheriffs with the task force investigators they serve this seizure order and they impound the truck and it was impounded on the evening of October 2nd, 1983. Larry accompanies investigators up to Illinois to, to Lake County. Uh, I think it's Waukegan, maybe uh, the, the cat, whatever the County seat is, is where their um, sheriff's office is. That's what I'm looking for. He goes to the sheriff's office at Lake County and he's going to have further questioning. And there's a guy in there named Dan Cullen. And on this occasion, uh, he admits to Dan that he's the the dominant partner in bonded sessions. He also admits that he had this relationship with John, who we talked about. Be, John was married. John and Larry have this ongoing thing. And Larry says it had been something of a love-hate relationship and that he and John would fight a lot and that John would hit him. He, at this point, he denies that the tire tracks and the boot impressions that are found at Ralph Kalish's murder scene belong to him. He says he's never met the guy, doesn't know anything about him. And Dan is able to get a reaction out of Larry. He says, Larry, we know something about you. You get into a fight with John. And you then pick someone else. And you stab him because you think it's John. When Dan says this to Larry, Larry visibly responds to it. They kick him out of custody. Larry ends up getting a lawyer. He gets a lawyer out of Chicago named Kenneth Ditkowski. And Ditkowski starts digging in on this case. He talks to Lake County. He talks to someone on the task force. And he finds out that the police had insufficient evidence to formally charge Larry with murder. So Ditkowski, he files a civil suit against Lake County and the ISP, the Indiana State Police, on October the 11th. And he basically says, look, you guys are harassing my client. You're violating his 14th Amendment rights. You're violating his civil rights. You're involving him in this task force nonsense, and you have insufficient evidence to formally charge him with murder. You need to stop it. And this suit 
basically names 11 officers in both states, and they're looking for money. But on October the 6th, the, the evidence of the tire impressions from Ralph Kalisa's crime scene had been sent up to the FBI headquarters and then off to FBI labs. And it had been compared with physical evidence recovered by Indiana investigators with this task force. They're trying to link Larry to this one murder. The FBI reports back to investigators that the boot impressions are a match and they have four distinctive areas that they're identifying wear and damage. And they're saying, this is it. This is this guy. And this is why there was also extensive blood stains discovered inside of these boots. The tires on Eiler's vehicle, Larry Eiler's vehicle were from different tire manufacturers. So the physical impressions that had been recovered from Ralph Kalisa's murder scene are determined to actually match that. And the tire impressions themselves were a, quote, perfect match, unquote, in terms of grip depth. So on October 27th, the investigators all get together, and this is the task force meeting with Lake County. And they decide that they have sufficient evidence to charge Larry Eiler with the murder of Ralph Calise. They obtain a warrant permitting their retrieval or seizure of Larry's hair and blood samples so that they can compare it with other evidence from Larry's truck. The following day is the date of the hearing of this civil lawsuit. So the lawsuit gets heard on October 29th, and Ditkowski he asked to access the affidavit that investigators had used to request a search warrant. And he goes in and he argues before the judge there that there wasn't any evidence against his client. But the judge, a guy named Paul Plunkett, he reviews this affidavit that was used for these uh, the search warrants and to get uh, to seize different things. And essentially, Judge Plunkett rules that Larry's attorney cannot get access to these documents. It's actually a brilliant move on Ditkowski's part, but Judge Plunkett shuts it down. So Larry leaves this hearing, and two sheriff's sheriff's, uh, department investigators, they hit his attorney with these warrants, which are for Larry's blood and hair samples. Turns out that Larry is O positive. And the in the boots that the FBI had been looking at, those are all A positive. So Larry's got a problem. Larry gets hit with a formal murder charge on October 29th. He gets a million-dollar bond. Trial date is set for December the 19th. During this time, investigators do all the things that you would expect they would do. Did you see anything that they did here that was kind of weird or no? I mean... Not Nothing that stands out right offhand. So they get a search warrant to go back to Robert Little's home. They take tons of stuff out of Robert Little's home. And that um, was based on the fact that he had lived, that Larry had lived there. Yeah. Okay. So they find a key that does match a key that was on the body of Stephen Agan. And that's really the only evidence they find. They don't find anything else in terms of clothing, jewelry. They seize drugs, pharmaceuticals. Uh, they seize Polaroids. 
nothing in there belongs to any of the murder victims. Nothing is something uh, that has anything to do with the specific murder victims they're looking at. That key even gets blown out of the water later on because it fits the door of an office where Larry had been working uh, almost two years earlier. Robert Little, Larry's mom, and the couple, John and his wife, they help Larry get rid of Kenneth Titkowski and replace him with a guy named David Shippers, who's a pretty well-known criminal defense attorney. Shippers uh, did not want to do what Kenneth Titkowski had been doing. Uh, he basically reverses course on everything that had been going on. And he tells Larry he won't represent him if Larry talks to the media. So December 1983, there's this whole hubbub over what to do with the evidence related to to how Larry was picked up and detained. A judge there in Lake County, uh, circuit court judge named William Block, he rules that Larry's initial arrest for this weird traffic violation was valid, but him being detained afterwards and them trying to recover evidence with the Indiana police, Indiana state police, and what was basically now in front of him from this task force had been obtained without probable cause. So he rules that Larry's detention is squashed. A further hearing to determine whether uh, the defense could, like they filed these motions to suppress physical and circumstantial evidence that ran from that day all the way up to November 22nd. And that hearing gets scheduled for January 23rd, 1984 at this hearing. They have multiple police sergeants come in and everybody says that, yes, we held on to him so that the task force could get together and talk to Larry. This causes a lot of problems. Judge Block, he adjourns the hearing and he rules that although Larry had uh, signed a Miranda waiver once he was detained, that he had been taken into custody for interrogation upon charges unrelated to the task force murders, specifically this crime of murder, and that he was only detained on charges of soliciting. So he cites the exclusionary rule. And once it's been done without probable cause, they cannot use what is obtained. Right. He essentially excludes all the evidence that was recovered related to boot prints and tire tracks, uh, which it just sort of goes downhill. The other thing that was weird was the boots had never been formally seized, which I think was a huge oversight. But essentially, everything that happened here was a violation of, of Larry's constitutional right. Right. And um, it was a violation because of the way law enforcement did it. And um, the reason that even in, you know, the early 80s, the court said, you know, you can't use the stuff that you got this way. It was to punish them. Right. Um, Because the courts don't want law enforcement to be violating people's constitutional rights when they're seizing evidence to make a case. And they have to go about it a different way. Right. And the law enforcement should have known better. Yeah. Yeah. They should have known better. And so he kicks 
The judge kicks everything. That puts Larry's bond down to $10,000. As a result of that ruling, Larry gets out on bond on February 6, 1984. And that's because uh, Larry's mom and Robert Little got together and they paid the the percentage of the fee that they needed to pay at the time. Now he's released, but the charges aren't kicked yet. He can't at that time leave the state of Illinois. The prosecutors are dragging this out and they submit several legal challenges related to how judge block ruled this case. And if you want to see somebody that's just like, hammering on behalf of the defense. That's what Judge Block did here. And it's totally within, like everything he did is on the up and up. These, this task force really screwed up. Um, they weren't taking this seriously enough. And everything, when I say everything got kicked, it got kicked all the way down to the initial blood samples and hair from Larry and the tire impressions. That was all that was left. So the prosecution keeps taking, they take some of this. I think it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. All of these appeals are unsuccessful. Within a month of being released, early March 1984, Larry just permanently relocates to Chicago. And he lives in an apartment complex in Rogers Park, which is, it's on the city's far north side. It's on the shore of Lake Michigan. Uh, It's very close to the Navy Recruit Trading Center there. So Robert Little like he pays the rent on this place and he like, he makes sure that Larry has furniture. Um, and also he buys a new set of tires for Larry's pickup truck. So Larry's lawyers at the time said, don't tell John where you live. So he doesn't tell him, but John does eventually discover that where he lives. They're operating on this idea that if John is some kind of trigger for Larry, they want to keep him apart. They don't know that for sure, but it is said by the police and it's clear in the interview tapes. So about 10.30 PM on August 19th, 1984, at this point, Larry has been out for seven months and he lures a 16 year old kid from uptown named Daniel Bridges to his apartment. Daniel is the youngest of a very big household. 13 kids. He is a neglected child. He is a, in a habitual runaway, but he's a straight kid who was gay for pay. He was being abused for money by older men. And he had been doing that since he was around 11 or 12 years old. He had actually been a close acquaintance or in the same circle as the victim, Irvin Gibson. Um, he was known to have been wary of Larry Eiler. He had actually described Larry to an NBC reporter who was filming a, um, a documentary uh, about two months before, uh, uh, early in the summer that year in June. And he had described Larry as a real freak who was known to the kids who were selling sex in Uptown. Inside Larry's apartment, he binds Daniel Bridges to a chair with a clothesline rope. And he beats him, he tortures him, and then he stabs him to death. Then Larry takes Daniel Bridges to his bathroom 
And he cuts this teenager into pieces. And each one of them, he allows it, like basically allows the blood to drain out. And then he places each of these pieces into separate trash bags. And he places the remains inside the bags inside a dumpster. On August 21st, 1984, we've had about two days lapse. A janitor named Joseph Bala discovers the bags with Daniel Bridges' body inside. Believing that the bags have been illegally dumped, Bala removes the bags from the garbage receptacle, and he just wanted to check to see what was inside of them. He removes the first bag from the dumpster, and the bag breaks, and they reveal that inside the bag is a severed human leg. So Bala goes to the police with this, and he tells them that other uh, janitors within the building had seen Larry Eiler placing these bags in the dumpster. A police captain recognizes Larry Eiler's name, and he tells everyone there that we're going to detain uh, anyone occupying that apartment. And he says he doesn't care who it is. So they go in and they arrest Larry Eiler and John is there, Dobrovolskis. So they're both taken into custody, although John is released shortly thereafter. A forensic examination of Eiler's apartment is conducted that weekend. It reveals copious quantities of blood had recently been cleaned from his bedroom uh, the bedroom had been repainted, and they found extensive traces of blood splatter across the floor, the wheeling, the walls, and the ceiling, regardless of it having been painted. Numerous traces of blood are later determined to be Daniel Bridges' blood are discovered on the mattress, on a chair. There's a leather belt that has blood on it. There's a sofa within the bedroom, and it's even beneath the floorboards of the doorway into the bathroom. The bottom line is Larry couldn't have left more evidence if he tried. Uh, Daniel's it's almost blood, like he wanted to be caught. It kind of is. I mean, he, he takes this teenager, he kills him right in his apartment, and he tortures him in a way, and he disposes of him in a way that the blood is literally everywhere. They find, you know, Daniel Bridges' uh, clothing. They find all of the tools that Larry used. They find all the receipts for all of the tools. Uh, they finally do a luminol test and the whole room just lights up. They find the drag marks. They're basically able to recreate the crime with a luminol test. On August 22nd, Larry gets charged with Daniel's murder. He says he doesn't know anything about it. He said that his fingerprints must have inadvertently been placed upon the bags as he had moved them aside when he had put other bags in the dumpster. That same day, the medical examiner up in Chicago does the autopsy on Daniel's body. And the autopsy determined that the death had been caused due to multiple wounds inflicted by a knife and what's known as an awl. Do you know what an awl is? Like a, a tool? I don't think I do. How do you spell that? AWL. It's no, um, I don't think I do. So it looks like it's got usually got like a screwdriver handle that's really small, and then it's a sharp, 
like uh, instead of like a being a Phillips head or a flat head, it's a it's a, like almost like a giant needle used for different types of woodworking. There's a number of things that you can use on all all for, but it's a um, little hand tool. Yeah. Okay. I, I looked it up. Um, that's something I would use to pry something. I, yeah. I don't have I don't have one of those, but I I've seen it before. Yeah. So it would be a very painful weapon. Yes. Yeah, that was what kind of that's where I was getting. So there were no facial fractures evident, but the teenager had definitely been hit around his right eye. He had numerous shallow cuts to his face. He had 14 wounds likely inflicted with either that owl or an ice pick. They were these wounds were found uh, around his sternum, and these wounds had all been inflicted prior to his death. Moreover, five knife wounds to the abdomen had been deep and, again, had caused sections of Bridges' uh, intestine to protrude through the wounds. There were other wounds in his back, including wounds that had been inflicted with such force that his heart and his left lung had been perforated. Do you think that he was getting back at him for giving that interview? Maybe. Maybe if he knew about it, maybe. He was, uh, you know, he's got really coincidental and I don't believe in coincidental type things when we're talking about this type of, um, case, right. These types of cases, because, you know, eventually just because the police didn't follow, um, what they were legally required to do, that doesn't make Larry Eiler any more innocent of the crimes. Right. Correct. I, I thought. I don't know for sure, but that it was certainly interesting. And I haven't seen the interview. I've just heard it stated that um, he gave an interview, right? Yeah. And to me, that's just kind of weird. It's almost like there's a little community of these children who are being abused for money. And there are predators, and Larry Eiler would have been one of them, that, you know, they pay these kids to abuse them essentially. And so it's almost like they would be aware of one another. Yeah. I mean, to give that type of interview, he had to have had an awareness of the situation. And then if it was seen, but it also, so this brings about a question of like, if Larry sincerely wanted to get away with what he had done, clearly he would not have done this. Right. It is almost a fluke that he's caught because you've got a curious janitor irritated that somebody's dumping trash that I assume he has to take care of and that I don't think he thought he was going to find what he found. He was just trying to figure out why trash was being dumped, right? Yeah. There is a slight possibility uh, he might have gotten away with this if that janitor hadn't have been curious. But it's, it's almost like it's... It's too close to home, and, you know, if it hadn't have been caught this time, it would have been caught the next time or the following time or, you know, whenever. Because, to me, it either is a cry for help or it is a, a, it's, it's blatant arrogance or something. I, I, I'm not really sure. I didn't get a good enough feel of, like, what his attitude actually was. Um, but it's almost like it's so much information that it's almost like, please put me in jail. Yeah, it's um, especially based on the fact that all those other the 
the dismissal based on the the unconstitutional actions of the police earlier the same year, right? Yeah. Re- related to the same types of crimes. I mean, if you were legitimately trying to not, you know, go to jail for it, you certainly wouldn't do this. And then if Danny really made that interview, it's almost like it was almost targeted. Because this was a completely different crime than what he had been accused of doing, right? As far as the dumping and everything on the side of the road. Yeah. Now, I think I know the answer, but was Danny sexually assaulted? No, he wasn't. And so it's interesting to me, and it changes the motive. I don't think these crimes were sexually motivated. I think that they were motivated by rage, obviously, from the the way that the murders happened, right? Like you said earlier, a rageful stabbing, it's not a common type of murder. That would be correct, yeah. And uh, because if you think about it, you think about the effort it takes to carry out a rageful stabbing. Now, it sounds to me like um, in Danny's case in particular, the way it's laid out based on the evidence they found in the apartment it's almost like he was torturing him, right? Which made me wonder, like, was it not, was he not getting back at him for giving the interview about him being this creepy guy, right? I mean, I think that's the best explanation I've heard. Because he wasn't sexually assaulted. I feel like the kid went there on his own volition, probably under the guise he was going to get paid. Because um, you have to keep in mind, uh, 16-year-olds that were allowing themselves to be abused for money. Uh, They weren't doing it because they wanted to. They were doing it because they needed money. Yeah, I would say, you know, I I don't, this is not victim blaming when I say this, because that's not what I'm, that is not the attitude I'm trying to come across with. But when you're in that frame of mind that you're doing that for money, there might be a series of bad decisions that potentially come along with that. I think the fact that you're doing that for money to begin with is indicative of that without victim blaming. But, you know, why would a 16-year-old – was he 16 or 17? He's 16. Why would a 16-year-old kid, you know, say make a comment about this creepy dude in an interview with the media and then turn around and go to his apartment? Well, because a 16-year-old that's being abused – and being paid to be abused makes not smart decisions like that. And it's not its not entirely his fault, right? I, and I'm not blaming the victim for it. But, like, you know, to, to put it in perspective, he was taking jobs just like anybody else doing anything else takes jobs. They take what's available to them, right? Correct. And who knows – like, really, the mindset, it is possible he took him, I guess, right? But that's never been what's been laid out there. For all we know, he was there on his own accord, right? Well, it, I, yes. It, we The way it's presented to all of us, and here, here's what I'll say about that. I, okay, I didn't get the impression you did, and I don't know if he knew about the interview. I agree with you, though. Because my impression had been a kid that would say something like that might also go, give me $20 or I'm going to tell them you touched me. 
And that might enrage somebody like Larry Eiler. Well, I, I'm not sure. I feel like, um, I, I guess that's possible. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to need to, I'm going to see if I can find the interview. Well, if, if you can really, find that, I, I would, I would definitely be interested. If it really exists. Right. Um, but I feel like that would be kind of pushing it. It doesn't seem like he was shy about saying like, I think you're a creep. So you could be totally right. It's just, I don't believe for a second that if this kid spoke out to the media and it was seen, or even if it was just rumored to have happened and Larry heard a rumor, because you know he was probably watching what was being said about him, right? I mean, given the situation, if it was being covered in the news, which I don't know, I don't know what the coverage was like, right? Right. I would say... It, even if he had just heard about it, it would have infuriated him just that he had made those types of comments, right? And then, yeah, if he was like, you're going to need to pay me, but then why go with him, right? It's a, it's a very, it's very touchy because he was in this position to have been put away. The police messed up, law enforcement messed up, the judge rightly threw it out, because his constitutional rights were violated and then this kid gets killed. Yeah. And so the whole situation, it's, it's bad. All of it's bad, but it's left me to wonder that like normal circumstances, you got away with all these murders. Why go back for this next one? Right. At that point, without additional evidence, they were never going to be able to, to bring those cases back because they would have to have brand new evidence that was untainted. And I just, I don't think it existed now at, you know, much, much later DNA may have done it. Right. But with what they were working with, I don't see how they were going to get any evidence that couldn't be tied back to essentially what had happened was they denied him access to a lawyer. Right. Yeah. And so by doing so, they violated his constitutional rights and nothing could be used. And if they had anything at all, they would have pulled it out and used it to have him rearrested, right? And so oh, yeah. that, that mindset of like, I got away with all that. So now I'm going to do this new thing. And it was different, right? The crime against Danny was different than what he had For done. a number of reasons, yeah. Like, for a number of reasons. Like, it's, it's on his premises. Like, there's so much about this that it, like, it's just sort of right there in your face type stuff. Right. Well, we're going to come back next week and we'll talk about the insanity that wraps up Larry's life. And we will move back to the... I-70 Strangler to sort of wrap up one of the other possibilities. And that's going to lead us into a whole different rabbit hole. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS.
All right. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have and i've i've selected all of these guys i've selected all of these advertisers so the very first one is cure now i'm going to tell you guys about this uh about cure as being one of our sponsors if you're an athlete you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars that's why we love cure it's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go, they're perfect for travel, and anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself you can use code true crime excess for 20 percent off your order that's t-r-u-e-c-r-i-m-e-x-s i have a link that i'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime excess will get you 20 percent off our second sponsor for the show today is laird now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. 
They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel. And he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as the secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. 
And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.